And thank you for that Sylvia, reading, Sylvia. The kids are invited to Kids Church. Sylvia, do you know what translation you were reading from? New Living. More than centuries long for the dawn. Is that what it said? Century. Like the soldiers. Yes. Uh, I was listening to that and I was like, I don't think that's a possible translation, but the centuries one does make sense because it means um, like people who wait for the dawn. Yes. Uh, you always learn something. I try to read multiple sort of Bible translations during the week, and then every now and then somebody chooses one that I didn't look at, and I'm like, well, that's interesting how they, how they get there. This one makes sense. Um, are people familiar with that phrase from other one? More than watchmen wait for the morning. Um, is the more common way, I think, because the King James wins all the time. <laughs> At least in people's memories, that's the case. Um, well, this is our eighth sermon in the Songs of Ascent as we sort of move as pilgrim people towards Jerusalem. We, we're sort of taking this journey ourselves on this way. Now, I don't know why, when we, did, when we do Old Testament books, generally I try to find sort of one sort of rabbi or Jewish commentator to sort of go along with, and I don't really have one on the Psalms, so it leaves a little bit of a gap there. But this Sunday I was reading somebody who finally pointed out that the Psalms of Ascent might have been recited. There's 15 of them, one for each step, on the, on the movement of the steps from the outer court of the temple to the inner court of the temple. And so it's this, you recite one on each step as you sort of move up, which I thought was like, that would have been useful to know like eight sermons ago, um, six sermons ago, because I think that's such an interesting sort of concept of like it's this movement up at the end that sort of goes. It's our, it's our body sort of going from this outer place into this inner place. And as you see in these final psalms, that's going to become more clear, especially with the benediction that ends it. But today, it goes to the depths. I mean, we've been doing, see, there's psalms of ascent. This is a person ascending, but this psalm for us to begins today, out of the depths I called to you. It's almost like this opposite movement, right? Like you're going up, up higher and higher. We're um, at the 10th or 11th Psalm of Ascent, um, and we go back to the depths. Out of the depths I cried to you. Out of the depths I looked for you. Now there's this... Um, paradoxical way I think of looking at this that is helpful not helpful to some degree which is that the closer you move towards holiness the closer you move to goodness the closer you move to beauty and you'll see this not just in relation to God I think but sometimes when you move towards um, purity and beauty and holiness and goodness just in the course of your life wherever that may be you start to feel the darkness that comes with you it's like the magnifying light as it gets brighter reveals the darkness as it's hid. As you get closer and closer to that thing which burns and is bright, the more you feel your own darkness drawing you back. It's this relationship that as we've moved to this spot, perhaps we're drawn back into our own pattern. Now one of the things about this line is out of the depths I cried to you. It works in our world in this sense is that many people have, um, we've talked about anxiety a lot, but just sort of like down in the dumps, darkness and depression seems to be something that's 
very common in our world, so much so that like you get TV ads for, for drugs to sort of lighten your day, um, to lift you up. And so we live in a world that feels like that we have lived in the depths in this sort of secular way. You could, you could bring this out to people, um, I think, in some ways, and ask them, have you ever been in the depths of life? Have you ever been in darkness? Have you ever been in a place where it was hard to see the light, hard to grasp, hard to move forward? Um, and I think it's, a, it's an existential thing that has come to many of us at various different times. That, that we're sort of in this place in which we can't move forward. One of the things I noticed about in my past patterns of, of non-clinical depression is I can't even choose what's good for me, right? So like I'm down in my dumps in my dorm room, um, and I know that if I go and play, uh, go to rugby practice, I'll feel better from rugby practice till the end of the day. I know that's true. And yet, because of my own sort of darkness, sitting in those depths, I'm unable to choose the things that lift me out of it. It's just sort of like you choose to spiral further and further down into your darkness. You choose to go darker and darker into the depths. And this is, to be clear, there's a difference between non-clinical depression and clinical depression. I think in non-clinical depression, like I had, I, didn't, I wouldn't say it was full choice that I didn't go but I certainly had the ability to sort of begin to crawl out of that darkness. In the cases of clinical depression, uh, this is like a modern caveat you have to give in sermons, it's different than that. People do need help and support to get out of those things. So just to be clear, there's a difference there. But we have this, this sort of way in which we can sort of feel the depths in our lives. And I think in, with this psalm, you can, you can sort of feel that in your own life. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. But one of the things that becomes clear in this psalm is this isn't just our common sort of existential dread that's happening. That the psalmist has sinned against God. That the psalmist has cut off relationship himself. Now, one of my, my ways I talk about sin, and we haven't talked about sin a lot here, which is so this is the problem, right? So we have these depths that we feel, and then we never talk about sins. So uh, the other day, somebody sent me an article, or I, I don't know where it was, Vox, which is an explainer webpage, wrote an article about whether sex addiction is real. Um, and part of it was, well, if you have shame about it, just cut the shame off, and then you don't have the problem anymore, right? And I was like, I don't know what other addictions we would do that with, right? Like, if you're an alcoholic and it's disrupting your life, just stop feeling bad about that and don't drink, or keep drinking, it was sort of like, the problem is people feel bad about it, and if we cut out feeling bad about it, then, then they'll be fine. Um, and this is where I think uh, our world doesn't have language for sin anymore. I mean, you can imagine somebody reading this article and who's in the midst of a struggle with that and saying back to the person that maybe is feeling violated by this relationship they have, that, like, you can't judge me because that's just puritanical culture coming over us. That's something foreign to us. And they, they may be right. I think that there's part of which Scripture calls to us is that it's for Christians to know sin. It's, it's being part on the inside. It's part of getting near the light that makes the darkness shine there. But that's part of our world today. One of the things that I like to say when I think about sin is that sin is that which cuts us off from God, Sin is that which cuts us off from our neighbor, and sin is that which cuts us off from ourselves. 
Sin is that which cuts us off from God. Sin is that which cuts us off from our neighbor. And sin is that which cuts us off from ourselves. It's the three ways it can sort of work. And I think in the moments when you feel in the depths like this because of your sin, it's because you've sort of cut all three. You've lost yourself in what you've done. You've somehow lost your relationship to God in what you've done. And somehow your neighbors and your friends don't seem capable of helping you out of it either. It's something you've done that sort of, and I would argue that sort of all sin hits all three of these categories, but certainly some most clearly do. Like where, and, it, and it has more to do with the alienation that you feel. It's, it's that you don't even feel like you can relate to yourself anymore. I mean, part of one of the hard parts about this sermon and preparing for this week is to think about in my life where I felt like this. Where out of the depths I cry to you. And it's not exactly easy. There was, there was a commentator who pointed out that this psalm um, is one you write after, not in the midst of the depths. It's not, it's not as easy to, to have this articulation when you're stuck in the depths. But when your life has been lifted out of it, you can begin to testify that out of the depths I cried to you, Lord. Lord, hear your voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. One of the things that we miss in sort of our translation is that depths, I should note, last week we had the problem that comes from the oppressors on the outside. This week we have the problems that come from the inside in the psalm. Um, but one of the things I think we miss at, in, when we read the psalm in English is depths just sounds like a deep place. But in the psalms and in the scriptures, particularly the Hebrew scriptures, when it uses depths, it means the deepest place. It means akin to Sheol, which is the word that we would translate hell or underworld. It means out of the lowest parts of the earth. It's a place in which the psalmist question, can they even, God, even receive praise from there? You're most likely familiar with psalms that say, God even hears us in those darkest spots. One of the things at Bible study this week, one of them is uh, the house of defiance that meets in Rifle is going through the psalms before we preach on them. Um, and one of the things we talked about in relation to this was, and then I lost it because I was trying to remember which house of defiance it was. Um, Anybody who was there, could you fill in the blank? I didn't give enough details. Um, uh, we talked about this sort of like with this depths means something like chaos and darkness. It's this cosmic threat on the outside. Like, oh, we compared it to Jonah too. If you want to read an, a similar psalm to this, read what Jonah writes from the belly of the whale in, in the second chapter. As he is in the belly of this beast, sinking, sinking, sinking down into this depression and darkness. It's there that we find that. And so Depths isn't just um, the world's most annoying song, I Had a Bad Day by Daniel Powter. Does anybody know that? Jonathan, can you give us a riff on it? Do you not know it? I had a bad day. What is it? Okay. Yeah. It doesn't sound like he had a bad day when he sings. He's definitely not in the depths. Did you know it too? Other people know this song. Good. I wasn't lost. When Jonathan doesn't know it, I figure, oh, now I'm hosed. Um, it was in a commercial, wasn't it, for something too? Yeah, I had a bad day. He doesn't sound like he's having that bad of a day, to be fair. Um, 
he's still singing and kind of perky about it. Um, whereas out of the depths is this place that's like this cosmic threat. It's this darkness. It's this thing which is beyond. So the psalmist in some sense is, is saying, out of the grave I cry to you, Lord. Out of death I cry to you. Now one of the, the great parts about this psalm is I think it pairs well with Jesus' Jesus's journey from Good Friday to resurrection. Most of these psalms in language do, Jonah too does as well, is that, that as Christ sinks into the ground, as Christ sinks to darkness and into death, I mean, Holy Saturday is, we, we occasionally have Good Friday services, and then we come and it's Easter. Um, and, and rarely do we sit in that Holy Saturday place, that day in which Christ is in the grave. That this is this place where Christ goes to, too, in this. It's almost like this psalm anticipates this. Let your ears be attentive to me. So the psalmist continues. Well, I want to say one thing is that the psalmist speaks from this place, and it's for us to speak from this place. One of the the ads I've been running during the sermon series is for us to pray the Psalms, to pray the Psalms, to pray the Psalms. Egypt is, contain, or is ruling Israel. The Jews are slaves in Israel at the, be of the be beginning of the book of Exodus. And it says that God heard their cry. This Psalm almost anticipates like a personal Exodus. It's, it's asking to be moved from that place. One of the things I want to say about this is it's so much in our lives, in our darkness and in our trials, in our times, is that we don't think it's something to bring towards God. Or we don't open our mouths towards that. Or we don't vocalize this movement towards God. And what happens in, in this Egypt thing is that God heard their cries. If you want to be freed from the depths, if you want to be brought up from the grave, if you want to be given new life, you best articulate that to God. God heard the cries of his people in Egypt and brought them out of slavery. Sometimes we think these, these dark areas of our lives, I, I mean, it's, as pastor, I get this, and maybe you do too when you talk to people about church. They almost is like, I'll come to church when I get myself cleaned up. And it's like, well, then you'll have no need for church. <laughs> um, uh, then it's, that's, that's when you begin to find that you'll be doing it on your own just fine. Uh, church is less effective then. Um, well, I don't have the right language or this, that, and the other. Um, uh, oh, I need to clean the, my, my life up, this, that. Like, no, we're fine with you where you are. That's kind of the point. And our hope is that if you come and join us, you'll find that a whole lot of us have either been there or are there, and we're journeying together in this place. And to be fair, the goal of the Christian life, and neither necessarily the, the Jewish life in, in the full sense of the Old Testament, is to be fine by yourself. To say, oh, I've got it all under control, I'll go to synagogue or church today, is to then say, I don't need to go to synagogue or church today. Which I think is where we find maybe the more honest people who say they don't need to go to church. Why would I need to go to church? My life is fine. Like, there, you're honest. Why would you need to go? The person who says, my life's a mess. Why would I go to church? It's like, no, you're in the right spot. This is, this is the place where God can really work. But if you say, my life is fine, why would I go to church? I won't argue with you. Um, I'm not here to prove to you that your life isn't fine. 
um, which incidentally is a form of evangelism, funny enough. Um, but moving on. Uh, if, Lord, you kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that with reverence we can serve you. This is a powerful passage that, Lord, if you kept record of these things, if you kept record of the things I have done, then no one could stand before you. This is, and it'll tie in later, the, the Hebrew word is, is watch. If you kept watch of all these things, no one could stand before you. For forgiveness is in you. Now, back 10 weeks ago or 8 weeks ago, I gave the church, this church a choice between walking in the penitential psalms, the psalms of forgiveness, the psalms of reaching out to God in our darkness and of confession, and the psalms of ascent. The vote came back all in favor of psalms of ascent over confessional, penitential, dark psalms. Um, and I wonder why. It's like it's... Uh, they don't have a class on that in seminary, but I certainly would have failed it. Come up with catchy sermon series. Psalms of darkness. No, you failed. Um, but this is one of those psalms, by the way. This is one of those penitential psalms. And what I think we find in, one of, in many of them is that God is already there as forgiveness. The most famous of these is Psalm 51. Um, here, uh, now I've got this one stuck in my head. Um, Yeah, everybody knows this one, right? Except for me, at the moment, I'm up here. Um, Psalm 51, which begins with this, uh, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. I didn't need to find it. Have mercy on God according to me, your unfailing love. Allegedly, this is David after he's committed his sin with Bathsheba, killed her husband, and his son has died. It's a dark moment. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. If you kept a record of sins, who could stand? For forgiveness is in you. The reason why we read that, that portion from Exodus uh, that was read during worship today is that God in the Hebrew Scriptures has been known as this God of forgiveness. We think that's New Testament, but that's deeply true in the Old Testament that God is known this way as this God of forgiveness. And so it's like that this... Um, these people, these penitential psalms, and we, we didn't go over all of them, but these two in particular, it's like before I even utter the word seeking forgiveness, I know that forgiveness is there. I know that God has made a way for forgiveness. That's the way it sort of goes, is that, is that this is not like you wallow in this, but you wallow in this to the moment you can wake up and see that God has forgiven you. And so this uh, longer quote that I wanted to share this week, which I think is worth thinking about, um, because I've thought about it for a long time, and I always wonder, does it fit with this sermon or not? So I'll read it, um, and then you can decide uh, how you want to think about it. The initiative is always literally with God. When God forgives our sin, he's not changing his mind about us. He is changing our mind about him. He does not change his mind. He does not change. His mind is never anything but love. He is love. The forgiveness of sin is God's creative and recreative love making the desert bloom again, bringing us back from dry serility to the rich, luxuriant life bursting all over the place. When God changes your mind in this way, when he pours out, it pours out on you his spirit of new life, it is exhilarating. 
but it is also painful. There is a trauma of rebirth as perhaps there is a trauma of birth. The exhilaration and the pain that belong to being reborn is what we call contrition, guilt, feeling guilty. And this is the forgiveness of sin. Uh, Contrition is not anxious guilt about sin. It is the continual recognition and hope that the Spirit has come to me as healing my sin. It is the continual recognition and hope that the Spirit has come to me as healing my sin. So it is not literally true that because we feel we are sorry, God decides to forgive us. That is a perfectly good story, but it is only a story. The literal truth is that, is that we are sorry because God forgives Our sorrow for sin is just the forgiveness of sin working within us. Contrition, feeling guilty again, and and forgiveness are just two names for the same thing. They are a gift of the Holy Spirit, the recreative, transforming act of God in us. God does not forgive us because of anything he finds in us. He forgives us out of his sheer delight, his exuberant joy in making the desert bloom again. God forgives us for rising us out of the depths, not because we're changing God, but because God is one who rescues people from the depths. That we feel guilty, that we feel stuck in darkness, is the process of the Spirit working within us, is what Herbert McKay says. But we know we are feeling that because God will lift us up. God will restore us. God will bring life to us. God is one who forgives sins so that we can with reverence serve you. Now, this is, this is a great line here. We, we can with reverence serve you, which one of the translations we used at the house church said with the fear of God, that we will have fear of God. Like, uh, and scripture tends to, particularly modern translations, try to take away the fear of God sort of language, even though it's the best translation because we have bad connotations of what the fear of God means. I'm a defender of the fear of God, but we're not going to get into that today. But I do want to say this, is that God's forgiveness here is that if the world is ruled in darkness and sin and death and addiction, if the world is a place where it seems like evil people always win, if the world is a place where darkness seems like it has the final word more often than not, and that we're bound in these cycles of depression and depths, the fact that God can forgive this means that God is more powerful than that. That God can forgive this darkness means that God has more power than that has. And you've probably potentially seen this in your life in real tough moments of forgiveness. Whether you received it, whether you did it to somebody else, is that in these points in where it's clear that you have or they have the ability to take what is theirs, to chop off the hand, to push you out, to leave you into darkness, and yet they forgive or you forgive, the power seems to have changed. Something different has happened in the room. What can you do to the person who forgives you? It's almost like forgiveness has its own power in itself. This is why Jesus comes as meek. We want to continually chase more and more power to have over people. But it seems like in forgiveness comes freedom, and in freedom comes this ability to be more than you are. But in there, in you there is forgiveness, Lord, so that we can receive 
and serve you. This is what the psalm proclaims for us. God's being in his mercy. Now this is one I obviously had fun with. I will wait for the Lord. My whole being waits for the Lord. More than watchmen waits for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. I won't read the whole slide. Um, you can keep reading if you want. More than watchmen wait for the morning. The psalm here, the language is playful. It almost invites you into the process of waiting for the morning. My whole being longs for you. More than watchmen wait for the morning. And it says it twice in most translations. There's a way you can say it once with the Hebrew, but most English translations repeat, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. You're being invited into that place of waiting and watching and of hope with this psalm. For God's forgiveness, for God's mercy to show up, for God's goodness to be there. See, there's two observations I want to make on this. The first is that wait plus watch equals hope. Um, That if we wait and we watch, we wait in hope. But the second is this, and and maybe I didn't need that slide. It seemed good at the time. Two seconds. Um, Didn't take longer than two seconds to do, though, plus for me. Um, Is this, is that we wait for the dawn. Now, hope in our world is is a bit like this, is that uh, do you think the Cubs will win the World Series next year? I hope so. Do you think you'll get that raise, this new job? Do you think you'll find this new path? I hope so. Which means it would be good if it happened, right? But what the psalm doesn't say is hope in this way. He doesn't place this into this, it might happen. And I think this is where Christian hope struggles today because we live such flat lives. Is God true? Is the resurrection true? Is God going to renew this earth? Is God going to put this back together? Is God going to raise me from the depths? Is God going to take the desert and make it bloom again in McCabe's quote? I hope so. But what the psalm says is more than watchmen wait for the dawn. The sun is going to come up. The dawn is going to be there. So if you're on night watch on the wall, which I think is a Game of Thrones reference, um, or if you're on night watch at a job or a camp, God, please don't be the person who has to do that at a youth trip. Um, But if you're at any of those things, morning is coming. It's not a question of, I hope so. It's like, this this is about the same way. Um, (laughs) He sees me, he does that. Um, That this thing is going to happen. It is going to be there. The earth is going to turn. And the better thing is this, is that when you're caught in the depths and you're waiting and you're hoping in this place, you don't turn the earth. You don't make it come back around. You wait for God's forgiveness and light the way the watchman waits for the morning. It's not up for you to make this go. So many of us, we live in Colorado. What do you do when you're lost in the woods? Stay still is generally the best advice. Don't do anything. What do you do when you're lost in the depths of darkness and you know this God who who forgives and raises and brings back up? There are certainly things you can do, but the act of forgiveness, the act of new light coming on this place, the act of there being a new dawn, that you wait for the way the watchman waits for the dawn. And the, to go back, I wanted to, I noted that that watchword in the, 
the Hebrew. If, Lord, you kept a watch of sins, then it, it actually is that we watch for the forgiveness of the morning. God doesn't watch the sins, but we watch awaiting that consummation of all things, the goodness and the renewal. The daybreak, and, and it, the early church obviously did a lot with this part of the psalm, on that this is the morning of resurrection. Jesus is raised at the first light on the third day. This is the Easter good news that we await. And so if we've seen it in part in the resurrection, we await its fullness coming on creation in the new day, when God will renew all things. And so in the final verses, the, the psalmist turns towards teaching, which is similar to Psalm 51, is that if you knit these bones back together, I'll teach sinners your way, and I'll teach this song, and, and we'll learn together. At the end of this psalm, the psalmist speaks to his people and says, Israel, church, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem church, Israel, from all their sins. This is why I think you write this part at least after you've been rescued from the depths, after you've seen the goodness of God, after you've made the term, is because he instructs the congregation then. Look, as I've been raised up from the depth for you, remember to put your hope in the Lord when you're caught in darkness and despair without a way out. For in the Lord is unfailing love. And his goal, his purpose, is not just to redeem a little of it, but full redemption. What did the message say, Chris? To, to buy back everything. I think it was something like that. To, to redeem it all is sort of like to put it all back together is God's purpose. He will redeem church, Israel, from all of their sins. So it is good news for us, it is good news for Israel, that God is God who hears from the depths, lives and has his power and forgiveness. And we're awaiting as the sun rise of a new dawn. Let us pray. Out of the depths we cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear our voice. And let your ears be attentive to us, to our cry for mercy. Lord, if you kept a record of all that we've done wrong, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord, we wait for the Lord. Our whole being waits, and in this hope, in this word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the dawn, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Let us put hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and within him is full redemption. He himself will redeem this place from all its sins and fallings. And so let us pray together the prayer that Kim opened the servants list. When we realize the depth of sin, O oh God, we are driven into dark despair.
It is only realized the height of your mercy.